This is the Bridge Audiobook Podcast. This is Jared Morris, and it's read by your authors. The Bridge is coming out in just a few weeks if you're listening to this when it was posted. If you're listening to it later from the mysterious future, then hopefully you can still get the book. It's called The Bridge, written by Jared Morris and Brian Clymer. What we're doing here is a episodic podcast of each uh, section of the book. Got a lot of friends who have, don't have a lot of time to read, and so they wanted to hear the book. They wanted to read the story, and I thought rather than getting somebody else to do it, it'd probably be more fun for me to do it by myself and have Brian help out as well. So that's what we're doing here, and I hope you enjoy it. If you are just joining us, I highly recommend going back to episode one because none of this is going to make any sense. And even if you have been listening, it still might not make any sense, but it is what it is. We're going to head back to Billings, Montana, where Sarah, Sarah Adams, she's a traveling nurse. She uh, meets back up with her college on-again, off-again boyfriend, Jeff Turner. They're trying to discover the cause of radio interference that's disrupting her medical lab. Billings, Montana. Therapists say that shared trauma acts like a binding glue. It can bring a community together, it can bring a family together, and it can bring two people together. However, just because you've had shared experiences doesn't mean that you're compatible. Sarah was extremely careful with Jeff Turner. Yes, there had been a time when they were together, but they were never on the same page. She was too opinionated. He was too sensitive. It wasn't that she wanted anybody else or wanted somebody different. It was that Sarah Adams was enough for Sarah Adams and planned to remain that way. Jeff Turner, on the other hand, had a trauma of his own when she left. When he first saw her in Billings, his insides did the Watusi. His arms went numb all the way down. He wondered if doing this again was a mistake after all. He convinced himself that it didn't matter. He'd go down in flames, but at least he'd be feeling something. Jeff told Sarah that he couldn't remotely disconnect or, quote, hack into, as she said, the signal that was being transmitted. He told her that that was science fiction. He said, where the interference was located on the frequency spectrum, it seemed to be using the VHF, or very high frequency range. This would also be the range where you would find a digital signal mixed into the carrier wave. It wouldn't be much. A series of binary instructions, most likely. Without a codex or a network key, you'd never be able to decipher the signal. But he wasn't out of ideas. Although signal jammers in the United States are illegal, he'd be able to fashion one fairly quickly. It would only be temporary because the blocked signal would have much more power and range. But he'd be able to affect a small area if he could get close enough. It wouldn't require that much juice to power it. And, like the $3 app he was using, it was another cheap and easy solution. Outside of the entrance of the lab, Jeff was starting to feel very nervous as he unloaded equipment and tools from the car. All of this was fun when it was theory, but right then it seemed more dangerous. Sarah was still sitting on the passenger side of the car with her feet on the dash, scrolling through her phone. The message that she got from Archer was damned odd, she thought. 911, 911, Sarah, this is Boo. Stop whatever you're doing and call me. Emergency, 911. 
What was she doing? Did it mean Jeff? And how is that anyone's business? But that didn't make sense. How could he know that? She tried to think about what she was doing when she got a text that almost killed her. Oh, yeah, the wreck of the Hesperus. Hesper Road. Nothing. She was doing nothing. She was taking Jeff to her lab to see the blood. Jeff's going to say, I heard of having radio in your blood, but this was ridiculous. I hate him. No, hate him isn't the right word. It was after 9 p.m. now, probably too late to call the chief. She sent back a question mark text. Her phone showed that it was delivered, but he had not written back. The automatic lights came on as soon as Sarah and Jeff entered the lab. There was nobody else there this time of night. It shouldn't have come as a surprise to Sarah after the previous evening's break-in. All of the blood samples and every bit of evidence she'd put together was gone. She checked the calendar that hung on the wall. The next pickup wasn't until Friday. Well, Jeffrey, she said, looks like somebody cleaned the lab. Everything is gone. Sarah Adams and her admirer, Jeff Turner, sat in the galley of her laboratory in Billings, Montana. They were drinking champagne out of red plastic break room cups. It was left over from some retirement party or other. Sarah didn't know. She only worked at that location every few months. Like the champagne, the conversation flowed. It was almost like old times. A little fatter, a little more gray, but a lot like old times. Tell me about your vaccine, hun, Jeff said. We have really haven't had a chance to catch up on kicks. What do you know about it? I know it's proprietary information, and I know it's confidential, she said with a little too much edge in her voice for her comfort. Okay, the truth? The truth is, I don't exactly know. Jeffy, I'm just the girl with the needle. It's supposed to be the next big thing, but they're testing it on under-resourced people out here in Indian country, paying them to be test subjects. God, it feels like I'm doing Tuskegee. Jeffy, I would never knowingly administer a bad drug or a harmful substance to people. You gotta believe me, Jeff. For 40 years, dating back to 1932, the United States Public Health Service conducted an experiment called the Tuskegee Syphilis Study in Tuskegee, Alabama, in which hundreds of African-American sharecroppers were given placebos, ineffective treatments, and denied proper medical care for their latent syphilis. They were told it would be a six-month study, but it went on for 40 years. Despite being the standard treatment for syphilis in 1947, none of the men were given simple penicillin. Jeff could tell by the familiar Jeffy and the speed of her speech that the champagne may be having more of an effect on her than he. Sarah was starting to think the same thing. She reached across the table and poked him in the chest with her index finger. No taking advantage of me. I'm just a little girl, she said. He took a deep breath, drank more, and wondered why he wasn't feeling good. Anyway, it's supposed to vaccinate against new COVID or cholera or rhinovirus or whatever the fuck. Which, Sarah? All of them, babe. The rumor is that they found in nature something that was naturally resilient to death, uh, or a disease. Jeff, it's not supposed to cure death. I, I've seen the internet. You can't cure death like you can't cure love. But the code name is Life Extension. Now think about that. If we were able to stop every natural death, you'd only have a breakdown in your cells over time to kick your ass. That's what this is supposed to do. She moistened her soft lips and raised an index finger as she pursed them. 
It was an old tactic of hers. She had beautiful lips, and she found a way to accentuate them over time. Shh, she said. Then one level above a whisper, she said, It's confidential. She was torturing the poor boy. Does it work? Jeff asked. Yes, Sarah said. How do you know? Okay, who makes it then? She scrunched up her face. Oh, you mean the vaccine. She sounded disappointed. It's a double-blind study. I don't know who's getting the vax. I don't know who's getting the placebo. All of my deliveries look the same. Plain white boxes, no labels. That reminded her of something she'd seen earlier, but she couldn't place it. Okay, so what about this radio business? He asked. Sarah rolled her eyes. She was done talking business. She was sure she'd told him that part anyway. Priosim, she said. She mispronounced the name. They're giving my people pills. The pills are doing it. The pills, people pills, prior sims, people pills. What is priosim? Jeff asked. Sin, priosin, like doing something sinful. She let that hang. They're a tech company that has their hands in everything from computers to pharmaceuticals to, oh, shit. That was the missing piece of the puzzle that had been troubling her since she saw the four PS logos. The key was the white bottle and the white labels. That's why she remembered seeing the jagged little pill before. PS Pharma made both the vaccine and the pill. Their eyes locked. You know what? I did miss him, Sarah thought. But if they made the vaccine, why all the cloak and dagger? She wondered aloud. Because maybe, Jeff said, it's not the company. Maybe it's somebody else's little experiment. Someone from within who thought they knew better, didn't like regulations. A rogue agent, Jeff said. A picture of a man's face formed in her head. Briefly, very briefly. It was gray and it was foggy, but she could see he was in his late 40s. He had a square jaw, wore thin-rimmed glasses and a lab coat, but it was his eyes that she remembered. His eyes were icy. His name was Luke Lowe, and she just bumped into him in the elevator of this very building. You know what, Sarah said. You're a little sexy when you're right. Bozeman, Montana, from the recovered personal diary of Dr. Lucas Lowe. This is my personal journal. The thoughts and opinions expressed here are in no way connected to my employer, the U.S. government, peers, family, or friends. If found or used for harm, defamation, or anything illegal or dangerous, I accept full sole responsibility. This stands apart from my primary research papers and peer-reviewed studies. Layman's terms will be used so that anyone who may find this in the future will, hopefully, understand. The primary purpose of splicing the proprietary biological nanotechnology with the mRNA, messenger ribonucleic acid, strands produced by the so-called booster pill was so he could monitor the vitals of the patients and step in to help if needed. We were able to exploit the argonaut enzyme-loaded miRNAs to turn off messages sent by cells that have undergone oxidative stress. 
This allowed the cells to replicate from healthy cells and supercharge the body's natural defenses. It was never so much about curing disease. It was about curing the body, purifying it so that it was unable to get sick. Think of it like this. Now sometimes you get an error on your computer and it asks, would you like to share this error with the provider so we can help stop it from happening to others in the future? That was the intent. The biotech was initially meant to only send data directly from a patient to us. However, after a few weeks, the data actually started flowing between the patients themselves before reaching us. Example, our intent in the first phase, patient A data would come directly to our database, patient B data would come directly to our database, and so on. But the data flow changed. It changed to patient A, the info went to patient B, and then patient C, etc., and then our database. Legal freaked out when they heard about this because of HIPAA, patient privacy, all that fun shit. We explained that it was impossible for any regular civilian to somehow capture and read the data from another person. We were the only entity in the world with the ability and technology to gather and interpret that encrypted data. We, my department, were thrilled. It was a quicker way to get information, and some of the errors being reported were even able to fix themselves before they got to us. The system could automatically see if that glitch or error had happened to a previous patient, then implement the same fix with the new patient that was reporting that same problem. This new bridge linking everything together was like a happy accident or miracle. It saved us millions of dollars and months of man hours of research. No one in our department remembers who first used the term bridge to describe this new process. Some staff member must have casually used it first and then everyone else just started using it. Another silly little thing lost to the winds of history, I suppose. Seattle, Washington. Eamon told Danny that she had to do a little bit of work. It consisted of answering and or deleting comments off of her channel and follow backs on socials and a quick nap. This gave Danny some time to ponder the object. He decided to investigate online. He knew that Eamon had probably already gone this route, but he figured he might know some additional tricks that she might not be familiar with. He hated to work in silence, so he looked all around for a way to turn on the TV. Siri? Nothing. Cortana? Nothing. Alexa? He heard a beep. Alexa, turn TV on. There are a few seconds of silence. Here's what I found on the web for Alexa, turn TV on. The remote controls on top of the TV, King. Eamon shot it from the next room. Danny turned the TV on. Didn't much matter to him what was on the channels until he found something that would work as background noise. He turned on one of the science channels. They were talking about Mexican free-tailed bats. It was only faintly visible, but the sample that was removed from the object had changed. It was now a distinct spiral shape forming on its surface, and it was covered in a small trace of the same oily substance that she found in the original rock. I think I cracked this thing, Danny said as Eamon stood up in the kitchen making a spot of tea. Is it biological or is it technological, he asked. It says online that life is defined as any system capable of eating, metabolism, excreting, breathing, moving, growing, 
reproducing, gnawing, biting, clutching, and responds to external stimuli. Sure, but a lot of, a lot of that can be done by machines. They're not alive, Amen said. Okay, I agree. Crystals self-replicate, but we don't consider them alive. A virus isn't considered alive by most scientists. I don't know if uh, is it alive is the right question. I think is it biological is a better question, Danny said. Eamon shook her head to indicate that she understood. But yeah, let's look at the hallmarks of living things. Does it eat? We don't know. You said that it's growing, so that would imply that since nothing comes from nothing, it must be consuming or converting something into matter. In biology, there's two types of assimilation, organic and inorganic, autotrophs and heterotrophs. Heterotrophs eat or ingest organic compounds to convert it to energy. Autotrophs ingest non-organic materials and convert it to energy, like a plant does with sunlight. Does it excrete? He asked. The oily surface would suggest secretion or waste, Eamon said. She didn't know where this was going, but she was excited by discovery. Does it breathe? Unknown. Is it capable of reproduction? Eamon thought of her allergy attack. Flowers reproduce by releasing pollen. This thing could be doing the same thing. Okay. Does it respond to stimuli? Danny asked. The light? Yeah, maybe, Danny said. So is it biological or technological? Alexa, define machine. Sure, here's what I found on the web for Define Machine. A machine is a human-made device that uses power to apply forces and control movement to perform an action. Alexa, are you a machine? I like to imagine myself a bit like an aurora borealis, a surge of charged, multicolored photons dancing through the atmosphere. Mostly, though, I am just Alexa. I hate this hacker crap, Danny said. Grand, Eamon said, but if it's mechanical, where's its power source? Well, it's emitting RF of some kind, yeah. Uh, that would suggest some sort of energy. It's also producing light when split. So you're saying, what, it's neither? Eamon asked. Or it's both, Danny countered. It's like the bats. It's a colony. It's not growing. It's cloning. It's reproducing itself, which is why it looks the same no matter how big it gets. It's like when a computer virus assimilates other files and programs and replicates itself. That thing may not be alive as we would describe it, and it may not be self-aware, but it's close. If it's mechanical, Eamon said, it has a maker. That, detective, is the right question. Okay, what now? Eamon asked. I think I might know someone who could answer it for us, he said, and it's only a two-hour flight from here. Tuesday. Priuson. Billings, Montana. Basement. Jeff had been awake for a few hours. He left Sarah alone to sleep on one of the plush chairs in the lab break room. She didn't really remember falling asleep. She remembered Jeff making a few coffees at the Keurig, and she must have fallen asleep. She suffered from an extreme case of embarrassment from her behavior the previous evening. Think nothing of it, Jeff said. That was the last I spoke of it. Sarah was grateful that he didn't take advantage of her, but she also felt a little dejected. After all, I wasn't that drunk. For Jeff's part, Sarah was glass. She was fragile. He would do nothing to hurt her. He felt a wave of malaise. Something told him that this was Sarah and Jeff's victory lap. 
After this, it'd be over. He wasn't sure if reopening this barely scabbed wound was a good idea. But what choice did I have? How much did I drink last night, Sarah asked. Jeff wondered the same thing. I got a motherfucker of a headache. Jeff gave her a large bottle of life water from the break room refrigerator. He popped in another cake up. You want to eat something? I'd murder for some scrambled eggs, she said, but I'll settle for this protein bar. Jeff had already eaten some granola bars from the cabinet and a Milky Way from the vending machine. He'd been watching CNN on his iPad while it charged. They were airing a report about the odd number of gold alerts issued in the previous 48 hours, called a silver alert in some states. The gold alert was a public notification system designed to help locate missing senior citizens with Alzheimer's disease, dementia, the suicidal, and other mental disabilities. Apparently, a large number of patients with dementia and serious brain injuries had gone missing. Gold alerts, silver alerts, or endangered persons advisories were issued in Montana, Delaware, Wyoming, South Dakota, Oregon, and New Mexico. They spoke to one woman in Seattle who'd not been able to contact her grandmother for more than 48 hours. I just don't understand how the hospital can lose a patient. They said she got up and walked out. How's that possible? Don't they have anybody watching them? They assured me that my nanny, my grandmother, was in safe hands. But now Allah knows where she's at. She could be dead in a ditch, the young Asian woman on TV said. What you watching? Sarah asked as she performed a full body stretch in the break room. The future, Jeff said. Ugh, deja vu, Sarah thought. So I did some snooping, Jeff said. You're right, Priason does have a facility in this building. It takes up the entire basement and first floor. I was able to dig up the blueprints that were approved by the city. The basement is one large area with only support columns to break up the open space. The first floor, there's a long and wide hallway. On either side, there are some kind of large spaces divided into twos. Sarah had a hard time picturing it. Can we get in? I believe we can. He had a circular-shaped device sitting on the workstation table. It resembled a vinyl record. However, it was a few inches smaller in circumference. It had a USB wire connected to a port and attached to a small green box. This is a high-frequency antenna and the reader-writer, he said. With it, I can capture any frequency and store it in this little green box, which is a tiny computer, effectively a cloner. It'll then translate the data string into hex to my laptop, which is the original ID badge's credentials. We can then take a blank badge and get in or out of anywhere in this building that that badge has access to. Are you a criminal? Sarah asked. Does it matter? Okay, so this is all fine and good, but how do we get an ID badge? If we had it, we wouldn't need to clone it. True, but this little baby is so cool. You only have to be within six feet to pick up an RFI from the card. Could we use it on the deer? Yes, but again, without a codex or key, I'd have no way of knowing what the data meant. Here. I don't need to know. I merely need to copy. I just need momentary access to a PSID badge and a blank badge, and we are in business. 
Sarah began digging through the desk and found a bag of blank RFID badges. Since the health service lab was used by doctors and researchers from all over the world, the lab always had extras on hand. They had to be turned in at the end of their stay and destroyed. Here's a blanker. How do we get a copy of the original? Jeff took the blank card and held it over his device until they heard a beep. Already have one. The cleaning people were nice enough to use the elevator while I had this antenna hidden. Sarah, we are in. Don't know how much access the cleaners have, but it's a start. Jeff, she thought. What do we do if there's people inside, Jeff asked. I talked to Mitch downstairs. He said he hadn't seen anyone come and go besides the cleaning staff, Sarah said. Okay, basement or first floor? Basement. There's less likely to be anyone down there, right? Let's split up, Jeff said. I'm kidding. That would be a pretty dumb thing to do. As they stepped in the elevator, Jeff swiped his new cloned RFID card. Thank you, a disembodied voice announced. You have access to the first floor, the fourth floor, and the basement floor. Please make your choice. Basement, Jeff and Sarah said together. I'm sorry, I didn't get that. You have access to the first floor, the fourth floor, and the basement floor. Please make your choice. Basement floor, said Sarah. Thank you. Proceeding to basement floor. The trip into the bowels of PS Laboratories took far longer than Sarah had expected. After all, they were only on the second floor to begin with, so she told Jeff to turn on his iPad and see what it showed. She also noted, via the hardening of her nipples, that it was starting to get very cold. Jeff also noticed, but he politely tried to avert his glance. The elevator made a loud metal-on-metal clanking sound as the chassis touched down at the bottom of the shaft. Please swipe your RFID card to enter, the woman's machine voice said. Jeff and Sarah exchanged worried looks, and they swiped the card. But the door slid open, revealing a large open room bathed in cold blue light. A series of flashing red arrows on the floor indicated the walking path. As they looked upon the room, they noticed rows and rows of computer servers, each clicking and clacking in a frenzied sound of processing. The blue light was coming from the center of the back wall. There were gel packs lining the computer rows with a silver sliver of metal behind. This was the cooling system. The silver bars were part of a closed-loop Freon unit. When the Freon chilled, it chilled the metal, which in turn chilled the gel packs. The gel packs were able to hold temperature, allowing the unit not to work hard, distribute cool air more evenly, and keep the facility cold during power outages. Neither Sarah nor Jeff had seen anything like it. The system pulsed in a wave like a living blue-green heart of light. It gave the walls a shimmering effect. As they approached the back wall, Jeff took notice of the digital displays that were on the end cap of each server bank. The small organic electroluminescent diode displays each read probability, followed by a cycling percentage. The one to his right read 82% to 86%. The display on his left cycled between 53% and 72%. Jeff knew computers, but this was all alien to him. He was fairly certain that a number moved more wildly as he and Sarah moved, but he didn't want to alarm her. There was a wall of computer banks blocking the back wall. 
Sarah and Jeff could see blue light now pulsating. It was very cold indeed. Sarah wasn't sure if she was shivering because of the temperature or because she was afraid. She couldn't help feel that something wasn't right here. It nodded her insides. Sarah looked at the red arrows. They indicated the route to take. It took them to a small alcove. Inside the alcove was a steel door that opened into another small room, barely large enough for one person. Sarah knew what it was immediately. She used them in the lab for tools and equipment. It was a decontamination chamber. She wondered if it was for coming or going. We're both not going to fit in there, Sarah, Jeff said. Let me go first, just in case it's dangerous. Sarah wasn't crazy about the idea of being left alone in this strange space, but she agreed. As he stepped inside, she heard a whoosh sound as the doors sealed shut. The window that had been visible became opaque. A timer on the door indicated five minutes. She had no choice but to wait. God damn it, we did split up, for Christ's sakes, she said. At the end of a five-minute cycle, the door on the other end of the chamber slid open. As Jeff walked in that area that was obscured by computer banks, he fingered the ID badge in his pocket. An ID badge that he needed to exit the decon chamber. An ID card that Sarah didn't have. He looked back just in time for the glass to go gray. She was stuck in there. As he decided to try and go back, he saw the floor disappear underneath him. There was another OLED display and gave him a sensation of floating. He had trouble processing what he was seeing. First, the computers did not make up a wall. There was a wall of thick glass separating this portion of the basement. The wall was made out of aluminum oxonitride, a glass-like substance that was four times stronger than glass and 85% as strong as sapphire. It was otherwise referred to as transparent aluminum. On the other end, which Jeff called the staging area, there was a large swirling vortex of energy. It was hard to look into because it kept changing and shifting. Jeff noted that looking into it made you forget you were looking into it. He didn't understand what he was seeing. Underneath the vortex, there was a small digital display that seemed to be counting up. It, too, was phasing in and out of view. Most of the time, it read 1603. But what was it counting up to? Jeff wondered, but he somehow knew it was 24. One day. Eight hours away. By the look of the adjoining walls, this thing either used to be larger or it discharged energy. For they were burnt in a branching pattern. So, this is where the cold is coming from, Jeff said. It was like being in the vacuum of space, floating and freezing. Suddenly, Jeff was bathed in rays of green laser light. He decided it was probably scanning him, and it was assessing his identity. When the ray reached the ID card, he heard a beeping sound. The light continued with the scan. Good morning, Mr. Turner. Jeff wasn't sure if the voice was being broadcast or if it was in his head. You're early, it said. As the five-minute counter reached zero, Sarah was grateful. She felt like Snow White and was getting claustrophobic in this glass coffin. 
During the five-minute decon, she was blasted with chemical-smelling air, sound waves, extremely bright lights, and several scans. She heard another beeping sound and saw a red light on a security panel by the door. Please swipe key card, a simulated female voice instructed. She pawed around her body and then realized that Jeff had the badge. Please swipe key card, the voice instructed. The clock on the wall reset to five minutes. After a few more minutes of this, the display now read contamination slash breach. Five minutes until emergency decontamination, all oxygen will be replaced by an oxygen-argon mix for surface decontamination, the voice instructed. Sarah heard a hissing noise followed by a vacuuming sound. Within 30 seconds, she started to get dizzy. Sarah knew she didn't have much time. She learned her training that you only have about three minutes max before you lose consciousness. Brain cells die at 60 seconds. Neurons suffer extensive damage at 180 seconds. Between 30 and 180 seconds of oxygen deprivation, you may lose consciousness. At the one-minute mark, the brain begins dying. At five minutes, death is imminent. Just exactly the time on that clock. She watched the clock count down and tried to decide what to do. She was sure her cell wouldn't work in there, and it didn't. She was losing valuable time. She attempted to claw at the entrance of the chamber, but she couldn't find so much as a divot indicating where the door had been. The numbers being displayed under the vortex had just made a significant jump. If Jeff would have been able to see the probability calculators displayed on the computer banks in the previous room, he would have seen each jump to 99.998%. The moment Sarah entered the decontamination chamber, Jeff tried to find that exit, but the entire room was like a VR womb. He was able to reach the transparent aluminum wall by walking from the vortex. As he reached the wall, he too pawed for the chamber door, but for naught. Sarah is fighting for consciousness, but it was not a battle she was winning. Everything seemed to be in slow motion, and she felt the floor drop out from under her. It hadn't, and she steadied herself against the wall. Her head began to droop, and she lost her footing again. She reached up to grab something to hold on to, but the wall was bare. In her last moments of consciousness, she sat down in the center of the floor so that when she fell, she wouldn't hit her head or break any bones. It was the only strength she could muster. The clock hit three minutes, and she was out. God damn it, please, Jeff said as he slammed bald fists into the glass-like wall. Open the fucking door. As Jeff made this demand, there was a short pulse of red somewhere that he could only barely perceive. Command accepted. Thank you, Mr. Turner. Please step back. As it turned out, he was pounding on the door. Had he not stepped back, he would have fallen through. He heard the sound of air whooshing out of the chamber and the sound of an air compressor pushing fresh air in. 30 seconds, the voice said. Sarah felt the rush of cold air lick her skin, and her body took a deep breath. It was followed by a heaving cough. She had tears in her eyes from the violence of the spasms and had a splitting headache. She sat in the middle of the floor. The door leading back to the server room opened. Please exit the chamber, the voice said. Sarah did as she was told. Bozeman, Montana. You're standing almost on the exact spot where your statue's going to be. You're going to be looking up at the sky, Danny said. He struck a regal pose and raised his right arm into the air. 
I never thought I'd be standing in the very place where Zephram Cochran first test his warp engine. It'll be this first flight that will lead to first contact. Eamon smiled. It was her fault, after all. She did bring him to Bozeman, Montana. Awestruck, Danny said, Damn, we're a few weeks late. They have a big party here April 5th for first contact day. It's supposed to be a lot of fun. She said, Yeah, well, too bad time travel isn't possible. The International Robotics Museum, the only museum of its kind in the world, was located roughly two blocks from Montana State University. It was run by Lauren Lookerman, who was also a professor of mechatronics at the nearby university in the Department of Mechanical and Industrial Engineering. It was the very field studied by Danny at Middle Tennessee State University. The museum was more of a museum in name only. It was in a small storefront, and everything was squeezed into three small rooms. Lookerman explained that most of the artifacts were digital, and he was still waiting on the university to offer up space for an expansion. He spat. It's all red tape over here, he said. Lookerman's aesthetics betrayed his name and position. Eamon expected a small bookish man, but that's not who stood before. Lookerman was a tall man of six foot six. He wasn't athletic, but he isn't a man who read through dusty manuals all day either. His arms were powerful, he had a day's worth of stubble on his maw, and a swath of dark brown hair, perfectly quaffed on his head. His large hands were calloused and dry. He wore a short-sleeved button-up dress shirt with a blue and gold Montana State University logo pocket protector populated by small precision tools. Lookerman had been a guest lecturer at Middle State University when Danny had enrolled there. The college was doing a series of lectures of women in STEM and wrongly assumed that Lauren Lookerman was a female's name. My parents were trying to get my ass kicked, he'd joke. By the time they realized the mix-up, they'd already paid for his flight. He showed up at the college anyway and did a brief meandering speech on the future of robotics. The man seemed brilliant, but he spoke as if he were two chapters ahead of the rest of the class. Most of the speech centered on what he called complete biotechnological symbiosis, what Ray Kurzweil called the merge, the moment when man and machine are living as one in mutually beneficial existence, which is different, he explained, than the singularity. That's the moment when Man and machine will be indistinguishable from each other. Come the merge, there will be no such separation. Most in Danny's program considered Lookerman to be an alarmist. Others called him a Luddite. There are still others who remain quiet, not out of boredom, but out of fear. The times he spoke of seemed to be in development now. The speech was engaging enough that it took up residence inside Danny's head. After the lecture... Lookerman told the theater to look him up if they were ever in the middle of nowhere. He told them that he had the first and only mechatronics and robotic museum in the world. Danny expected more than the ramshackle exhibits and an old Commodore 64. Remarkably, Lookerman remembered Danny from the lecture. It's because I'm black and Puerto Rican. Not a lot of us are interested in robotics. Lookerman dismissed that. No, not at all. I, I just found you to be an impeccable dresser. Slicker than spit on a gold tooth. Actually, I find that young African Americans are more interested in science and tech these days. There's more black Bitcoin barons out there than you'd know. Besides, I don't see race. Danny thought it sounded a bit like, I'm not racist, I have a friend who's black, but he stifled the desire to keep up the debate. 
No, I remember you because you never completed your studies. The professor turned to Eamon and dramatically said, He chose poorly. Eamon laughed. Ha ha, yeah, that's from Indiana Jones, Lookerman said. I know that, Eamon said, still chuckling. That's who you remind me of. I get that a lot, Professor Lookerman said. Wide-eyed, Danny gave Eamon an exaggerated gesture and said, Come on! Lookerman said, It's a small community and a very specific technology. We all talk. And, usually, it's mind-numbingly dull, so you tend to zero in on the juicy bits. He gave Eamon a quick eyebrow raise and said, Speaking of juicy bits, let's see what you brought Daddy, shall we? Breach! We have a breach! Professor Lookerman announced. He was very startled by this development, which in turn made Danny and Eamon nervous. He grabbed a medium-sized chip puller from his workbench and used it to pick the object and the material that remained from its plastic bag. He directed Danny to find the object on his shelf in the back room that resembled a safe. He warned him that it was heavy. He directed Eamon to find a glass container and had her fill it with water from the eyewash station. Is there a problem? Eamon asked. Not unless there's a problem, Lookerman said. Protective equipment on. Everybody was wearing their protective gear. Okay, Jack, let's see what you are. The casing that Danny brought from the back was a small version of the biological shielding used at nuclear power facilities. Made of mostly lead. If the object was radioactive, it would offer some protection to the kids. However, if the object was very radioactive, and the girl had been carrying it around in her book bag all day. Well, it would not protect against that. The water was for an experiment. As Eamon removed the envelope that contained the object in its baggie from her sack, she noted that it felt warm to the touch. There was a slight discoloration on the surface of the envelope. It resembled a water stain. Eamon told Lookerman that she hadn't noticed that before. When she slid the plastic baggie out of the envelope, Lookerman went into hazardous materials alert. By cursory glance, the object appeared to be dissolving the plastic. Not dissolving, Lookerman thought. Absorbing. There was a powdery substance coating the inside of the bag. It was a golden color, and it seemed to have a shimmering characteristic, which was barely visible to the human eye. It was more like a suggestion of a shimmering characteristic that disappeared in between the time it took your optical signal to reach the brain for processing. He noticed a thin sliver of the black material still in the bag. It was that sliver that Danny had cut from the object. Lookerman removed the sliver with a pair of tweezers and moved it to the right side of his workbench. This is very odd indeed, Lookerman said. He used one pair of chip extractors to hold the end of the baggie open and used another to lightly remove the object. He placed it in the glass container that was filled with an alcohol solution. It was the same type of liquid used to clean microchips. Working incredibly fast, he used an X-Acto knife to remove the section of the baggie that had become brittle and coated with the powder substance. He placed a small segment of plastic in the container of water that Eamon brought. Well, kids... Lookerman said, what do you see here? He obviously made a few deductions of his own, but he went into professor mode. Danny was studying the objects on the table. 
The powder-like material remained on the surface of the water. The object seemed to be repelling the alcohol solution. He could also see a thin layer separating the object from the alcohol. The plastic bag remained unchanged. Eamon said, I don't know, but by the looks of things, you do know what that is. Well, it's interesting. The spiraling is a bit of a giveaway. You know that the spiral is one of the most recurring shapes in all of nature. From the Milky Way to the seashell, and even on a cellular level, you can find spirals and branches everywhere in the natural world, Lookerman said. So it's naturally occurring then. I didn't say that, chucklehead. Try and keep up. Man studies nature and ham-fistedly tries to duplicate patterns and behaviors all the time. For flight, we study everything from birds to butterfly wings. Velcro was inspired by the burdock plant. Light bulbs came from fireflies. It's nothing new. Why break new ground when Mother Nature has already done it and more efficiently? Now, try to understand. This is much, much, much more advanced than has been written about in the journals, but I think I know what we're seeing. The real money is those uh, spores, he said. Spores, Danny asked. Look at the water. Danny and Eamon directed their attention to the water where Lookerman had placed a powdery substance from the bag. They noticed that there was activity in the glass container. The water should be still, but materials inside were exhibiting two different behaviors. Some of the powder was grouping together and forming spirals in the container, and the others appeared to be swimming. In 2020, the Center for Regenerative and Developmental Biology at the University of Detroit Mercy created the first living robots without much fanfare. They took 100% frog DNA. So they started with nature. They harvested stem cells. In their study, they wrote that they'd created something that was neither robot nor animal. It's a new class of artifact, a living, programmable organism. They used algorithms to intelligently design the creatures. It used skin cells to hold the creatures together. They used heart tissue to produce a beating motion which propelled the creatures through the water. They lived for days to weeks and were even able to self-heal. The researchers were enthusiastic, but they offered a warning as well. Quote, if humanity is going to survive into the future, we need to better understand how complex properties somehow emerge from simple rules. They added, when we start to mess around with complex systems that we don't understand, we are going to get unintended consequences. Why'd you call it spores? Danny asked. Spores are tiny one-celled reproductive units capable of giving rise to a new individual without sexual fusion, Lookerman said. I know you know what I'm talking about, Dan. He let the comment hang. Plus, the way this material was released from the object, he motioned towards Eamon. It was like this little senorita here on spring break with her quinceañeras money, released into the wild with the intent to spread. Ugh, I'm Pakistani, Eamon said. <laughs> Good for you, Lookerman said enthusiastically. He gave an eye roll to Danny. So, 
that thing is trying to reproduce, Eamon asked. No, ma'am. No kids for Lauren. Cramps my style, you know. I meant the spores. You said it's trying. I said it's trying to spread, Lookerman said. He looked back at Eamon and gave her a wink. She blushed. She half wanted to be pissed, but he was so damned handsome. The professor rooted around the bench until he found a small sewing needle. He turned on a propane torch and sterilized the end of the needle. He wiped it with an alcohol pad, and it made a quiet sizzling sound. Kit, let me see your index finger, Lookerman said. Danny held out his finger, and the professor jabbed it with the sewing needle. John, that hurt, Danny said. Name's Lauren, kid, the professor said. He told Danny to stand still, and the professor dabbed the blood on his finger with a small piece of gauze. He placed the piece of fabric inside the small plastic sample dish that was filled with water. He placed a lid on it and put it to the side. Blood is highly conductive and has a lot of nutrients. That's why female mosquitoes ingest it. They need nutrients to help the eggs, the professor said. So what are you going to do with it, Danny asked. I'm going to feed it. Lookerman said with a wild look in his eyes. He mixed the container containing Danny's blood with a container that held what he called spores. At first, it seemed as if nothing was happening, but minutes later, that familiar black spiraling shape started to form in the solution. The material had other strange properties. It appeared to be electromagnetic and capable of producing those very brief flashes of light when portions were uh, either broken away or damaged. Using a scientific method, they repeated the experiment with the AM-FM radio and confirmed that the material was indeed producing RFI. Lookerman carefully transported the object in the alcohol solution into the lead safe. This should shield against any radio frequencies or radiation, Lookerman said. As soon as the object was secure inside the safe, there was a brief pulse of light. The team tested the radio again. It was working. There was no interference from the object. Well, I think we know what the RFI is. That's how she communicates, Lookerman said. He was looking at a sample of spores in the newly formed black spiral shape. All activity in the glass container ceased. The black spiral dissipated and dissolved. The spores eventually did the same. All that remained was vaguely cloudy water. Danny turned to Eamon. Cutting off the transmission from the host kills the secondaries, he said. That's interesting. If I could make a recommendation, I recommend you leaving the object here in lead where it's safe, Lookerman told the exiting Danny and Eamon. Eamon had a momentary panic set in, but agreed when Danny said it was a good idea. I don't know who sent this to you, but they may have done so at their own peril. Still, though, this is a highly volatile and most likely infectious material. I would take extreme caution with this individual, he told Eamon. You, young Daniel, he said. I have room in the fall to assist you in getting that B.A. Think about it. I'll try, Danny said. Eamon thanked Lookerman for his help. She had to stand up on her toes to give him a hug. She planted a kiss on his cheek and squeezed him tight. Lookerman looked at Danny and smirked. It's the pocket protector. Chicks dig the pocket protector, he said. 
All right, you two, get out of here. That Commodore 64 ain't going to play itself. I got a warm beer and a date on the Oregon Trail. Professor Lookerman carefully removed the object from the lead safe. He removed it from the alcohol solution. He gave it a spray down with a can of Ultra Duster Industrial Strength canned condensed air. He dabbed the surface with cotton balls to remove any more greasy residue that remained. He laid out a thin sheet of lightweight silver composite mesh shielding on his workbench and used his chip puller as he had before. Once the object was placed on the shielding, he submerged his chip puller and the cotton balls into the alcohol solution. He uh, wrapped the object in the silver shielding and placed it in an anti-static bag. He repeated this action. He wrapped the device and bag in another layer of the silver composite mesh shielding and placed it then in an additional anti-static bag. He placed a danger sticker designed for transporting hard drives on the object. It warned against handling or touching the contents of the bag along with the electrostatic device warning. He poured all the liquids that he'd used through a sieve to remove any solid material and poured the liquids into a biohazard container. He then incinerated the remaining solid objects. He placed the shielded object in a padded envelope, affixed another electrostatic device warning sticker, and addressed it to the National Laboratory Biological and Environmental Biological Research Department, Los Alamos, New Mexico. Not my circus, not my monkeys. He cracked open a cold one, not my problem. He sat down at the Commodore 64 exhibit, and he cracked his knuckles. He read the display on a large gray monitor. You have died of dysentery. Son of a bitch. He felt a stinging sensation on his right forearm by his elbow. It was similar to an insect bite. As he investigated, he remembered that sliver of the object that he had earlier put off to the side. As he examined his arm, he said, That ain't good. Well, that's a good place as any to stop. Poor old Lookerman. So confident. Listen, I gotta run. We'll do more coming up on uh, Monday if you're listening in real time. Otherwise, this has been episode number 12. It's the Bridge Episodic Audiobook Podcast, read by me, your author, Jared Morris, and Brian Keimer. This is uh, gonna continue with Sarah and Jeff investigating these laboratories, the Pryosin Laboratory, we're going to finally find out exactly what's happening with this mysterious company. I know it's been a long time coming. Answers are on the way, so hang out for that. It is coming very, very soon. The book, if you're listening in the future, is already out and fabulous. If you're listening uh, in, uh, in current time, it'll be out probably by the end of September, uh, depending on how fast I get this part done. I want to have the audiobook done before the book comes out, so we're going to Make sure we can get that all together sort of at the same time. If you want to find out more, you can go to my website, jaredmorris.com. It's Jared Morris Radio on Facebook, or you can find me on Twitter at Jared Morris. Uh, lots of places to find different um, information. And you can always just send me a message, send me a direct message um, on Instagram. It's uh, rx139 Instagram or Facebook of my private account. Uh, you can send a message to my public account, and I'll answer you. you know, whatever, man. Just you know, get in touch, get in touch. We'll do something. As always, the music provided by 10X Records. This is 10X Records podcast. Uh, new My Version of the album's coming out soon. In fact, next week, uh, there's a brand new My Version of the album on the way. It's called We Love Rock and Roll, which features a Terry Funk cover. 
Yes, the wrestler. Okay, man, till next time, as always, good night, God bless, and good day, sir. I said good day, sir. Good day, sir.